0: About a year ago, an author named Emily announced that her book, Heartland, had been picked up by Putnam Books, and this was huge for her, as it would be for any author. Emily's agent, Molly Glick, works for CAA, the creative artist agency. They're known for repping best selling and famous authors, publishing books about everyone, from Mariah Carey to Joe Biden and working with Hollywood stars. You may have heard of them dropping Marilyn Manson a couple years ago. Emily's book, which she describes as a little farm novel, promised a sweet story about a young woman and a German POW, prisoner of war, set in the American Midwest during World War II. How adorable, right? Wait a minute, hold on. Did I read that wrong? Hold on. A young woman and a German POW set in the American Midwest during World War II. A German POW during World War II. Isn't that a Nazi? Well, sort of. The German military and Nazis were technically two separate things during the Holocaust, but the role of the German military or the Wehrmacht had been notoriously minimized. According to the Holocaust Encyclopedia, the myth that they weren't involved persisted long after the war. They were involved with forced labor, supporting Hitler and mass murder. So, you know, maybe don't give them a free pass. Needless to say, once people realized this, they weren't exactly thrilled at Emily or her agent. Like certainly the enemies to lovers trope may be popular in fiction, but this feels like at its core, a Nazi romance. And when you've got a romance featuring a Nazi in it, presumably, the book is either going to make excuses for that extreme anti-Semitism, try and excuse the behavior or the main character, a protagonist we're supposedly meant to root for by the way, will love the guy despite all of his flaws. You know, like anti-Semitism, being okay with people being sent to mass extinction camps, you know, little flaws. There's always that chance that maybe the book wouldn't be as bad as we think. But when the author responded by limiting who could reply on Twitter and not addressing concerns about her little farm novel, it was pretty understandable why people became so worried. Reactions absolutely ranged from congratulations to I'm so eager to read this, to the sarcastic, aw, as a little kid, I always dreamed of redeeming genocidal Nazis too. So big oof there. It wasn't really a good look, but again, and maybe, just maybe, we're wrong here. Now, this book is supposed to be released somewhere in spring of 2023. So we're still, we're in the realm now that it maybe could be published anytime soon here. So, you know, It may come out and we may have something to read and review and be like, is this really some kind of Nazi-esque romance? I don't know. Well, surprise, it's not actually happening. There's still been no cover reveal, there's no release date, and Emily doesn't even list Heartland as her debut novel on her Twitter anymore. It just says, debut novel forthcoming with Putnam books. Typically this close to a debut, we'd actually have a lot more information. So this leads me to believe that the book is being heavily rewritten. Or perhaps Emily is going to be debuting with something else entirely. I could be wrong, but if she actually does release Heartland in the Nazi romance state, I don't doubt that she'll face massive backlash. And I'm pretty sure as a published author, that's not really what she wants her legacy to be about. But then again, maybe it is since that's seemingly how she wrote it in the first place. Ultimately here, this whole situation has left many with one pressing question. How did this even happen in the first place? Why is the publishing industry supposedly treating Nazi romances like cute little innocent enemies to lovers novels? Well, Emily isn't the only one. We've seen World War II misrepresented for years and enemies to lovers permeate MAGA Republicans and liberal storylines too. For some, books are a fantastical escape to a wonderful world, but in other cases, I'd want to escape from the world they've created. And on today's episode of The Corporate Casket, we're gonna be digging into the publishing industry and their weird kind of okay obsession or fluffing over of Nazis. The feel of warm wool against her skin as she was wrapped in a blanket and carried. The dark trunk of a car. The driver wore the black uniform of the Schutzstaffel and exited first before rushing around to open the passenger door. The man who emerged next stood tall and broad-shouldered in a heavy greatcoat. Hi, I'm the Illuminati or Blair, whatever you'd like to call me, I go by both. And as we jump in today's episode, make sure to go ahead and check out the merch store, multilevelmerch.shop, if you'd like to go check out some cool merch, and of course, support the channel, support all the hardworking folks that make every single one of these amazing episodes happen. Now, as you expect, when we're gonna be tackling a sort of topic, looking at you know Nazis and romances and books, which is definitely a whole ass sentence I never thought I'd put together ever, we're also gonna take a look at general historical fictional fallacies. You might think that surely this can't be that big of a deal or that harmful, but I actually once fell down this rabbit hole and I knew I wanted to talk about it. Now, aside from Heartland, one of the most known Nazi romances in the past few years is For Such a Time. It's by Kate Breslin, and it was published by Christian imprint, Bethany House Publishers. According to Jezebel, the Christian romance features a Jewish heroine and a Nazi hero, which again, another sentence I never thought I'd really have to say out loud, but here we are. The disjointed white cross of the Hockenkrauts emblazoned its door, Jew killers. Stella froze as the Nazi staff car pulled up beside the house. Fragments of- The fact that this exists, honestly, bad enough. But did you know it was also nominated for awards in the Romance Writers of America Conference? Awards, plural, as in two. And I'm sorry, but how does something like this actually happen? Well, Jezebel has an explanation for that too. A subgenre of the romance business known as inspirational Often features traditional women and sweeter, less smut heavy stories. Apparently, this particular subgenre is full of hardcore, lifeway Christian, bookstore style evangelistic novels. And they're obsessed with Queen Esther. And Esther, if you're not aware, was effectively a heroine in the Bible, a Jewish woman that found favor with the king and risked her life to save Jewish people within the kingdom. That is a tiny blurb and gross oversimplification, but the point is that many Christians have basically fallen in love with Esther as a person and to some capacity as a character. Like a blogger basically wrote an entire Esther fan fiction or whatever the proper equivalent of that would be called Esther Actually. And Sarah Palin, unsurprisingly, told her supporters that she often reads the book of Esther to her daughter at bedtime. I got it. I got it. Hey, you're our modern day Esther. Hey, hey. God bless you, I will. I'm Church of God, Pentecostal, God bless you, God bless you. Take the Jewish Queen Esther Adoration, along with the trope of turning a dark, horrible person into a good guy, because surely anyone is redeemable through God's grace, right? And that's how you get a book as For Such a Time. Basically, Esther defeated a threat to her people before, saving the Jewish people from a terrible fate. And as inspirational Christian writers adore her, they want to create the modern Esther. So what's the most modern threat to Jewish people they can think of? Well, the Holocaust. And who represents that? Well, a Nazi. And there you go, a Nazi and a Jewish woman. And of course it's implied that the heroine converts to Christianity by the end too. So just keep that in mind as well. Now, of course I could be wrong, but Does that seem to be a thought process Kate Breslin had when diving into this book? It's not a sound thought process, but I don't think it's one someone should emulate because it demeans an entire fucking genocide. But at least I can follow her ridiculous leaps and bounds of flawed logic to see how we got here. There's a lot of stretches, lots of jumping, lots of hoops, but you can kind of see the pattern. But ultimately, from what I can see, the whole reason this book, offensive premise and all, even made headlines, is because it was nominated for awards. How many romance authors are out there perpetuating a fucking Nazi romance trope? Like, honestly. The answer, by the way, is one too fucking many. This is apparently a whole subset of a genre, and it's more common than you might think. One of these books came out in 2013. It was a gay male Nazi romance, again, a sentence I am so confused that I'm actually saying, and it features an ally captain and a Nazi prisoner that killed his lover. The summary reads, and I quote, "'The deeper the captain digs, though, the more he realizes that the soldier under the SS uniform is just like him, a scared, exhausted young man who's lost loved ones and just wants to go home. As captor and captive form an unexpected bond, the lines quickly blur between enemy, friend, and lover." This basically milks the excuse of, I was just following orders to make a Nazi appear more sympathetic, and it's a garbage excuse. Take the Milgram study, right? Have you heard of that one? Anyone that's taken a basic psychology class has probably heard of this. Participants were told to flip a switch and shock someone when they couldn't answer questions correctly. These participants followed Milgram blindly, willing to hurt and shock someone else simply because they were told to. When we look at soldiers on a wider scale, it makes sense that they are some who were, you know, scared to speak out and who supposedly follow blindly, except the study actually had a ton of issues with it. The experiments were far less controlled than originally thought. Milgram seemed to introduce variables to goose the numbers. Patrick Haggard, a cognitive neuroscientist at the University College London, recreated the study in a far more transparent, clear-cut way. What were the results? Hagrid said his team's findings do not legitimize the Nuremberg defense and that anyone who claims they were just following orders ought to be viewed with skepticism. But our study does suggest that this claim might potentially correspond to the basic experience that the person had of their action at the time, Hagrid said. Basically, yeah, maybe a Nazi would feel less responsible for their actions when they were ordered to carry them out. But to say, oh, I'm just a scared man who wants to go home as this author depicted a Nazi soldier? not gonna actually fly. And after hearing this, perhaps it's unsurprising that the Holocaust has had an uneasy relationship with literature for quite some time now. According to The Atlantic, one of the reasons for this uneasy relationship is because of just how important it really is to be fully accurate and wholly truthful with Holocaust literature. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's a complicated thing, a nuanced thing. Some aspects or details of history are so poorly documented that historical fiction authors have to allow themselves some amount of educated guesswork. Even if at the end of the day, others might consider it lying, that's the educated guesswork here. Now, these lies may go too far and alienate readers or be too obvious or harmful, whereas others don't detract from a historical story as a whole. When using the Holocaust as a backdrop of a book, If lies cross into that obvious and harmful territory, it's seen as a crass misrepresentation and, well, simply put, damaging. 54 years ago, to the day, a young Jewish boy from a small town in the Carpathian Mountains woke up not far from Goethe's beloved Weimar in a place of eternal, infamy, Buchenwald. He was finally free, but there was no joy in his heart. Ellie Wiesel, author of the book, Night and Holocaust Survivor, as well as countless other writers and artists have worked to somehow come to terms and confront this tragedy head on for decades. In 1985, the New York Times wrote, as far as some scholars are concerned, the Holocaust represents the first time in history that reality exceeded the imagination and the enormity of its horror threatens to render it impervious to the interpretive impulses of art. To transfigure the event into a work of the imagination, they argue, is somehow to trivialize the experience of the survivors and the victims. And just basically to really simplify things here, romanticizing and putting the Holocaust behind rose-colored glasses is not the way to go. It diminishes the horrors of the event. So those weird Nazi romance stories where the villain is just some poor blue-eyed soldier boy are gross on more than just one level. Plus, as the remaining survivors grow older and die, it's important that when preserving their memory, we do so in a historically accurate way. Sensationalizing, stretching the truth and fictionalizing historical events are bound to happen to some extent, yes. But when we have hordes of information available, why not be as accurate as possible for something so damn important? I know some of you may be thinking, what harm do a few lies actually cause? After all, there are some really powerful historical fiction works out there that talk about the Holocaust. One book, If I Should Die Before I Wake, features a neo-Nazi named Hillary. She's a young girl who ends up in a coma after a severe motorcycle crash, and while in the hospital, experiences flashes of the mind to a young Jewish girl trying to survive the Holocaust. It's fantastically well done, despite being a work of fiction. The trouble is that not all young adult books about the Holocaust are given the same care and attention to detail. Take the boy in the striped pajamas, for example. The book written by John Boyne tells the story of friendship between two young boys. One, the son of an Auschwitz commandant and the other, a Jewish boy living in a concentration camp. The thing is, yes, these boys are young children, not even 10 years old. Children are innocent, sure, but you can't tell me that the son of a high-ranking Nazi named Bruno in the novel wouldn't know how to pronounce Auschwitz and call it Outwith. And you can't tell me he wouldn't recognize a Nazi flag. You can't tell me he wouldn't know what his dad's job is and would know nothing about the discrimination of Jewish people. The Jewish on campus blog written by Rebecca Reinhold discusses this in the article. No, Jews don't want another The Boy in the Striped Pajamas book after it was revealed that John Boyne intended on releasing a sequel. The thing is, sure, maybe one of these things could have happened to Bruno, maybe, but all of them? asks him to go somewhere else because there's a very special job that needs doing there. What kind of job? Asked Bruno, because if he was honest with himself, which he always tried to be, he wasn't entirely sure what job father did. The whole fucking point of these high-ranking Nazis was that they wanted to spread their message and poison everyone they could with it. So the idea that Bruno's father would not teach him anti-Semitism is absolutely ridiculous to me. It downplays Nazism itself, and that's without getting into the other historical inaccuracies, like Bruno witnessing those in the concentration camps with crutches or bandages when places like Auschwitz did not have real medical care. If you were injured in any sort of way or disabled in any sort of way, you were gone. As Rebecca writes, quote, the theme of excusal is furthered by father's bizarre reaction to Bruno's death at the end of the novel. The father does not realize the horror of Auschwitz. He does not feel guilty. He does not see the place as remarkable despite having killed his own son there. He does not see anything wrong with what he has done. The boy in the striped pajamas trivializes the deeply ingrained anti-Semitism of perpetrators of the Holocaust and the horrors of Auschwitz. A reader finishes this novel with no conception of what actually happened at Auschwitz and with the idea that the people most harmed there were the children of Nazis. This is incredibly untrue and problematic. And yet, despite this extremely concerning portrayal, more than a third of teachers in England use it to educate their students about the Holocaust. This doesn't mean that a third of the people in England have no idea what World War II is really about, and I'm sure there's other tools being used to teach about it in the classroom, but it still sets a dangerous precedent. I know those words are overused, and I know I might get a few eye rolls at saying that, but hear me out. It starts here. It starts as a kid. Reading about how this Nazi and Jewish boy can really get along and how it was all just a misunderstanding might inspire someone to grow up and think about continuing those themes. After all, how many books were you inspired by as a kid? How many writers say they were inspired by their favorite childhood authors? We don't need another boy in striped pajamas. We need more historically accurate books instead. There are Jews that defend and enjoy the book as it is an emotional, powerful story. It's no wonder when the author says he was more concerned with the emotional truth of the novel than the historical one. Plus, he claims it's not his fault that his book is being used as an educational tool when he didn't write it for those purposes, which is fair, and I do agree with him, that it is the teacher's choice to choose those books for their classrooms wisely, but I don't feel like that really justifies writing a romanticized version of the Holocaust either. Like, regardless if you intended your book to be an educational tool or not, you didn't have to romanticize the Holocaust, period, but you did do that. I guess it's just an icky gray area for me. And Boyne's statement that he wouldn't change a thing because if his young audience didn't read his book, it's likely they would be reading something that has no relevance to the subject at all, doesn't really help. And I don't know, maybe I'm attributing negative intentions when there aren't any, but it does feel like he's saying, hey, young people are lucky to have my book because at least I talk about World War II or something along those lines. Like Boyne, you realize there are other stories about the Holocaust than yours, right? Including ones that were written by actual survivors and their family members. What about the ones like I've discussed? Like If I Die Before I Wake and Night. Boyne himself said he was even inspired by Night too. And Night is a book I did actually have to read in high school and it was deeply impactful in the way that I viewed World War II. The fact that there are plenty of incredibly well-written and well-researched stories out there is incredible. And then Boynes out here just like, no, you should be lucky. My fictional, like little romanticized Auschwitz story is around. Like, I'm sorry, chief, it's not happening. If the Auschwitz museum is warning against using one for education on the Holocaust, which yes, by the way, they really did do that for the boy in the striped pajamas, then it just might be worth finding something else to read. It's not that Boynes alone as the tattooist of Auschwitz and many other popular Holocaust books also fall into the same boat. It's really hard for me to feel sympathetic for Boyne here when he claims he researched his sequel for 18 years, and yet the Jewish Chronicle describes it as a pulpy melodrama. But I digress, let's move on. What does this mean for more modern romances? Controversy. Having already read the book, I was like, why? So here's the blurb, she's black, he's white. She's liberal, he's conservative. She thinks he's a racist jerk. Another book that like was recently it? released called Everything's Fine has received a ton of backlash on Twitter and other forms of social media. While this one is not a Nazi romance, and I wouldn't compare either of the main characters to a literal Nazi that partakes in a fucking genocide, it does have similar vibes just with a modern twist. Here's the book description as it stands on Goodreads. When Jess lands a job as an analyst at Goldman Sachs, she's less than thrilled to learn she'll be on the same team as Josh, her preppy, white, conservative sparring partner from college. Josh loves playing the devil's advocate and is just the worst. But when Jess finds herself the sole black woman on the floor, overlooked and underestimated, it's Josh who shows up for her in surprising, if imperfect, ways. Before long, an unlikely friendship, one tinged with undeniable chemistry, forms between the two a friendship that gradually and then suddenly turns into an electrifying romance that shocks them both. Despite their differences, the force of their attraction propels the relationship forwards and Jess begins to question whether it's more important to be happy than right. But then it's 2016 and the cultural and political landscape shifts underneath them. And Jess, who is just beginning to discover who she is and who she has the right to be, is forced to ask herself what she's willing to compromise for love and whether in fact everything's fine. Now I'd condense that lengthy summary, but I really wanted to read it in its entirety and then dissect it with you. So let's start from the tippity top here. A black woman who has overlooked at her job falls in love with a conservative white man in 2016. And I'm sorry, but what? It's not as if Jess is learning about a new perspective and Josh is realizing he may be racist or something. This book is Jess excusing her partner's seriously fucked up ideals because love. And what was that quote? More important to be happy than right? It's so much more important to be with someone you find attractive, who you love, and who's maybe, you know, not a racist bigot. If you excuse racism and stand by someone that has racist beliefs, then you're part of the problem. This book doesn't get released for a few months, so you might be thinking, well, what could I know? Maybe it's not as bad as you think. No. Book reviewers have already gotten their hands on ARCs or advanced reader copies so that they can promote it to their audience and there's not a lot of positive promotion going around. Multiple black women on BookTok, the side of TikTok that focuses on books, have said that this book is absolutely damaging. I just wanna say like a disclaimer, it's really painful for me to be this negative and critical because a black woman wrote this book and I love black women from infinity to infinity. So this is like hard for me, but also like I can't support Tom Valery, like I just can't and that's what this is. One book talker, Satre Reads, said that it was particularly difficult for her to be so negative about this book because believe it or not, a black woman also wrote this book. Even so, she said that it felt like the roughest rough draft And it was a huge commitment to create a divisive line between the characters. And most importantly, it was more oppressor and oppressed than enemies to lovers. She gave some specific examples too, like when Josh told Jess that he could see why she supported affirmative action because she was a direct beneficiary of it. And this author, Cecilia Rabbis, wants us to cheer on that relationship, to believe that it's fine to be with someone that makes racist comments at you because they also make you happy, I guess, to some degree. What a terrible example to set for young black girls and women that may pick up this book. It's not as if Cecilia is portraying this as a harmful or even abusive relationship. She's pushing the narrative that love conquers all when the thing that really needs conquering is the absolute bigotry Josh spews at Jess throughout the entire novel. But there is another possibility. Is this not meant to be a romance at all? The marketing has it geared towards romance, and the back of the book sure reads that way. But the blog, The Mary Sue, explains that the cover definitely isn't a classic in the romance genre, and it might be pitched as one to try and earn some of those sweet romance genre dollars. Instead, other readers say that it's truly meant to portray gaslighting, deflection, and knowing something is wrong without being able to articulate why. After all, an author does have control over their content, what's within the covers, but it's typically up to the publishing house to handle the rest. Is it possible that this book was miscategorized? Absolutely, that is a possibility, but it doesn't make things much better. In this case, then it's Simon and Schuster who are at worst endorsing abusive and racist relationships. At best, then it's the problematic ones as the Mary Sue puts it. If this isn't how Rabbis intended her book to come across, then SNS is more to blame. They should bear responsibility as the publisher for putting forth this into the world with this kind of viewpoint. I really hope I'm wrong. And that upon this book's release, readers say it's not as horrific as anyone thought. Then it's like, there's this huge commitment to create like a divisive line between him. Like she's liberal and black and he's white and conservative. And there's a commitment to have this divisive line. And it's really trying to give enemies to lovers. But I saw another comment that was like, when we say enemies to lovers, we don't mean like oppressor and oppressed. But let's get back to one point Satre reads made in her TikTok, because it definitely relates to this entire situation. When readers say they enjoy enemies to lovers, that doesn't necessarily mean oppressors and oppressed. Well, then what's the difference between the two? And why would one be a bad thing while the other isn't? Let's look at fantasy books to try and answer that question. So with fantasy books, you might expect a classic enemies to lovers trope, including two royals between warring kingdoms that broke peace or something like that, right? Or, you know, princess trapped in the castle and she doesn't like the guy that rescues her, but they learn to love each other, you know, blah, 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 Stockholm syndrome, whatever. Kind of the Shrek plot line, but just, you know, a little less funny and less ogre-y and a little more serious. Well, typically, you know, the two royals between warring kingdoms, lovers, fighters thing, whatever, that's all well and good. It can make for a really compelling story to see two very different people come together and not only learn to accept each other's differences, but to love for them. The trouble is that this enemies to lovers trope can also be taken way too far too. And in some situations, it might as well be abuser and abused, modeling a terrible toxic relationship for teens to follow. That's not to say that these relationships shouldn't be represented in books, but they shouldn't be marketed and treated as ideal romances either. I mean, right out the gate, one of the first and probably most obvious examples I can think of is like the Fifty Shades of Grey books and like the subsequent movies that went with it, too. I know like two years ago, I actually did an entire episode all about Fifty Shades of Grey and just how it's terrible, its portrayal of BDSM community. And it's just it's literally abuse. Like that's not a consensual relationship in any way. It's disgusting. It's controlling. It's horrific. And then so many of these like middle-aged women and stuff were out here fantasizing about it. And these younger girls were reading it going, oh, well, I guess this is okay. And there were absolutely some abusive dudes that just wanted to take advantage of that and be like, oh, well, I can hit her and call it BDSM. And I'm like, nah, chief, that's literally not how that shit works. But again, me and my distractions, I digress, let's go back. now. It's a fine line to walk when it comes to this, you know, enemies to lovers thing, because it's not as if there's any one singular thing a character can do to turn it from a great example of a popular trope into a toxic relationship, right? Relationships themselves can fall into these gray areas. So, you know, books about them will do that too, because that is a reflection of reality. But for me, I think there are a few very obvious fucking lines that can be crossed that should not be crossed. Like, I don't know. Like Nazi romances, racist characters. Why, why are those questionable? You know, why are those not hard lines in the sand? Truthfully, it's a damn shame that the publishing industry promotes them as romance. As if there's a way to push this trope to the extreme when in actuality, all this does is minimize shitty behavior in some shape or form. You want to read opposites attract, right? Sure, go for it. But maybe if one of them's a racist bigot or I don't know, a fucking Nazi, then maybe leave that one on the shelf instead. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm ending today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new today because I'm telling you, this was a total curveball of an episode and I was not prepared for where this was going. Like I saw some of the tweets about the books and everything and Heartland or whatever. And I was like, whoa, that's weird. But I didn't know it went this deep. So this was absolutely fascinating to learn about. And I hope you were interested and learned something new about today's topic as well. So remember, thank you for making it to the end of today's episode. Please make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. If you'd like to connect with me on other platforms, please make sure to go ahead and click that Linktree link in the description box. It's gonna have a neat little organized list of all my social media projects I'm involved in as well. Thank you so much for tuning in to the end of today's episode. I really do appreciate it. And I'll see you in the next one, which is actually gonna be tomorrow because surprise, surprise, Saturday, we got a bonus episode coming out for you. So make sure you stay tuned. Everyone have a great rest of your day and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.